Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Clones, welcome to the Daily Jungle. Thank you very much for tuning in. You know I appreciate it. Fun show today. The Dodgers are on fire. Tim Tebow got himself a promotion, and Boogie Cousins just shut down one of our best sound drops, swapping Krispy Kremes for some Krispy Kale. Three nice guests. We had Jeff Passon come in. He RSVP'd for the smack-off. Colorado Rockies outfielder Ian Desmond was tremendous. And SI's Lee Jenkins and I had an awesome conversation about Allen Iverson. And check out Tyler in Edmonton's call. Coming in for just a second time since getting his golden ticket. Did he keep it or did he get it ripped from him? Check it out. Bellinger drills it. Way back to right field. His second of the day. Let another Dodger party begin. His 24th of the year, and it's 11-6. It happened again. And by it, I mean the Dodger Cody Bellinger has homered once again. In fact, he homered twice, giving him six multi-home run games this year and 24 total home runs on the season, most in the NL, second most in the majors. So it happened again. And by it... I also mean the Dodgers win again, 10 straight with an average margin of five runs during that streak. And they did it by coming from down 5-0 to the Rocks to win 12-6. I mean, not only is that a game they've got no business winning, and they still find a way to win, they come from five runs back to win by six, which is ridiculous. And yes, the Rockies did help them out with some wild pitches, but good teams do find a way to win. And the Dodgers did just that. They found a way to win. Usually they do so with their bats. Brandon McCarthy did not have his best stuff yesterday. No problem. Nor was it a problem when closer Kenley Jansen actually walked a guy for the first time all season. I mean, and how hot are their bats? Jansen had an RBI double yesterday. So now the Dodgers have homered in 17 straight games. Much of that is thanks to Bellinger who was not even supposed to be in the majors yet. When he was called up in April, the idea was that he would just fill in while the team dealt with some injuries. And then all he did was get six hits and two homers in his first six games. Then nine bombs in May, another 13 in June, and then they beat the Giants in his first game. They lost the next game, but they've gone 41-14 and since. 41-14. and Now, it's not all perfect. It looks like Julio Urias, their top pitching prospect, could be done for the season with shoulder surgery. Adrian Gonzalez, probably out for another month with a back injury. But I've got to say, you spare a thought for the Rockies and Diamondbacks, two excellent teams who'd be leading any other division in the National League except their own. Because they're sharing the West with the best team in the National League. The Dodgers are doing what the Cubs were supposed to be doing. Mashing everybody in front of them. And meanwhile, the Cubs are barely above 500, and they're nine games back in Colorado for a wild-card spot. So, are the Dodgers the team to beat in the National League? Yes, but. Yes, they are a team to beat, but it's still June. The Giants were a juggernaut in the first half of last season. They lost the division by four games. I'm not saying that's going to happen to L.A. In fact, I'd be shocked if it did. But I'm not going to crown their ass just yet. You know that old cliche, it's a marathon, not a sprint? Slumps happen, injuries happen, other teams get hot. But the way they're playing right now, that marathon looks like a boat race or a cakewalk or both. I mean, Bellinger's got to cool off at some point, I think. But the Dodgers do not look like they're coming back to the rest of the NL West. 
they might be in the best division in baseball, but they're going to be awfully tough to run down. So I've got to start right there. They are red hot. Jeff Passon is back. Jeff, good morning. What's up? How are you? Jimmy, how are you, my friend? Good, bud. How about you? Life is great. Good. Lots to talk about, Jeff. Let me start with the LA Dodgers. They have won 10 straight. They came from five runs down to beat the Rocks to win by six runs. How good is this team? It's not just that they're good right now. It's how scary they're going to be in the future. And and right now, because they're in the midst of a 10-game winning streak and because uh, Cody Bellinger can't stop hitting home runs and because Chris Taylor's playing out of his mind and because, oh, by the way, they still have the best pitcher in the world, uh, we want to focus on the now. But I, I can't help but look into the future. The Dodgers right now have the deepest farm system in baseball, too. And that's even after Julio Urias went down with his injury, and that's even after the promotion of Cody Bellinger. They've just got guy after guy after guy, and they've done a great job of drafting and developing, which is going to give them two things. Number one, the opportunity to go out and trade at the deadline this year or in the offseason and use some of that depth. And number two, some more cheap guys to bring up to the big leagues to pair with those big salaried players that they can find in free agency. Uh, Everything is working out according to Andrew Friedman's master plan. And uh, this is a team that absolutely can win the World Series this year and and has as good a shot, I think, as any. Jeff Hassan joining us. I agree with you. I don't really see any uh, negatives at all. But if I were to flip this thing on its head, I mean, as good as they are, it is still just June. They've got a number of young players who have never been through something like this before, and they've had Mm -hmm. some injuries. All in all, as you look at this team, are there any major causes for concern? I think the rotation depth is the only really scary part. Um, Alex Wood isn't, isn't a guy who has been able to stay healthy or stay productive over a full season, and you can't expect you know, him to continue putting up a sub-2 ERA. And, and Brandon McCarthy, uh, a guy who's been really good this year, but again, someone who hasn't been able to stay healthy. And same with Hyunjin Ryu and Kenta Maeda, folded at the the second half of last season. Uh, Scott Kazmir, you don't know what you're going to get out of him. Orius is hurt. Rich Hill can't go more than four innings. I mean, the rotation depth obviously is there. It just not may it just may not be great depth. And so because of that, uh, the Dodgers could get aggressive and go out and try and use some of that uh, that prospect depth to get a guy like Chris Archer, for example. But they would have to overpay significantly there. Uh, and I just don't know that at this point, with the number of starters that are going to be out there on the market potentially, that there's uh, there's much incentive to do so. I agree, but I would love to see that. I would absolutely love to see Chris Archer here in Los Angeles. Jeff Hassan joining uh-huh. us. He is the author of The Arm. He is a 2017 smack-off invitee. All right, so Jeff, moving on to the Cubs for a minute. They're currently one game over 500. They lost two of their last three to the Marlins. What do you make of where they are right now? Oof. Uh, the Cubs continue to confuse and confound me. And Listen, I, I've made some pretty bad predictions in my day. Uh, the, the prediction business is not a fun one to be in. Uh, but there was nothing worse than me thinking Kyle Schwarber was going to be the MVP of the National League this year. So I'm just going to own that on, on the biggest and best radio program out there because uh, I deserve all the heat in the world for that. That being said, there is still uh, not just hope, but I think a, a, a realistic understanding that the Cubs are not – a 500 team 
And and I I know that their pitching has regressed this year, and that the velocity for all of their starters is down, and and the stuff just is not playing as well as it did, and the defense isn't as sound as it was last year. I still think this team has a run in it, though. Uh, it's it's nowhere near the the guaranteed uh, deep playoff run that they had last year, coming off the hundred plus win season. And I don't think that the Cubs are going to be nearly as aggressive at the trade deadline this year as they were last year when they went and gave up you know a guy who's now probably the top prospect in baseball and Gleyber Torres to go get a role as Chapman. But uh, I think the Cubs can piecemeal it together and still make a run. Here's the thing. The Brewers are actually a pretty decent team if you go and look top to bottom. They've been able to stay atop that division with Ryan Braun out more than half the season. And they're going to be a team that is a legitimate threat for the Cubs going forward the next few few Jeff, years. Jeff Passon joining us. Jeff, Stan Schwarber for one minute. You are far from the only person who thought that he'd be an MVP this year. I mean, you go back to last season, it was amazing to hear how teammates talked about him and what he uh-huh. meant to that team, and now he's been sent down to the minors after hitting a buck seventy-one to start the year. What has happened to him, and then what kind of a message does that demotion send the rest of the clubhouse? I'm going to hit the latter first because I, I spoke with some people with the Cubs afterward, and I said is this is much Schwarber being used to send a message to the other 24 guys as it is just sending him down because Schwarber, uh, I mean, look, his, his batting average has been terrible, but he still had plate discipline and he still had some power. He was, he was not the worst thing about the Cubs, but uh, he, it was almost like he was scapegoated a little bit. And, and I can understand why, because it, things are getting real now and, and the Cubs need to understand uh, and, and by the Cubs, I mean the 25 guys in that clubhouse need to understand that uh, you don't fritter away a year like this when you still have your core in place. It, it, you just can't do that. It's it's a hugely wasted opportunity. Uh, as far as Schwerber goes, uh, I think he just lost control of his swing. And I know that's a... Uh, that's a really general thing to say, but uh, there's too much swing and miss in his game. And when there's too much swing and miss there, uh, some guys can overcome it. Uh, he was not someone who's been able to. So I think the swing is still there. I think Schwarber long-term is going to be fine. But when you have somebody who is not contributing with base running, is not contributing with his glove, and his back goes to pot, then you don't have a whole lot there. Clones, allow me to talk to you for a moment about Ferguson. Ferguson is the nation's largest distributor of plumbing products, but their playbook goes deeper than plumbing. Pro contractors know to depend on Ferguson for the best in waterworks, HVAC, and facilities maintenance products in the game. Ferguson has over 20,000 knowledgeable associates always working for you. Combine that with Ferguson's 1,400 locations and 24-7 online ordering, and you will always have the home team advantage. See why the pros pick Ferguson at ferguson.com today. That's Ferguson. Now it's back to our daily jungle. Jeff Passan, the author of The Arm, is joining us. He's a 2017 Smackoff invitee, which I'll hit in one minute. Hey Jeff, one more thing about guys and home runs. As of last week, players were on pace to hit nearly 500 more home runs this season than they did in 2000 during the height of the steroid era. How does Commissioner Rob Manfred explain all these home runs? He doesn't 
And that's the really interesting part of it. Rob Manfred, uh, just like everybody else in baseball, is really confused as to what it is. And uh, for for upward of two years now, I've been putting on my tinfoil hat and saying I think that the ball is juiced. And, and I do that because I think it's the only logical explanation. When you have guys of different sizes and different strengths, when you have pitchers of different velocities, and in different spin rates, and the only consistent thing across the board is the ball itself. I mean, there are no other signs of, you know, you, like fastball-heavy pitchers aren't giving up more home runs. Guys with curveballs that have spin rates of 2,600 or more are not giving up fewer home runs. I mean, it's consistent across the board. And so while Major League Baseball has run uh, studies on the ball and they are insistent that it's not the ball. Logically, it's just the only thing that makes sense to me. We're talking to Jeff Passan. In fact, my CBS colleague Dennis Dodd just tweeted, at Jeff Passan, a definite factor in smack-off now on at Jim Rome. All right, then. The smack-off is July 28th. Jeff, are you ready, willing, and able to appear on that day? Right in the middle of the trade deadline, uh, no less. But I, I'd like to—I'd like to start by apologizing. Actually, um, <laughs> apparently, living in Kansas City, uh, I'm a little too close to Mike in Little Rock, and and the secondhand smoke from his bong drifted across state lines and made me uh, confuse a wrestling program with the single greatest event on radio. It was an embarrassing mistake. It's one I won't ever make again because I respect the smack off too much. Uh, and yes, I absolutely will be there. I've been listening to the Smack Off uh, since Vic and No Cal cashed his first welfare check. Uh, I've been listening since Cal in Vegas drove his first panel white van and scared all the kids in the neighborhood since the first uh, crunch of the fax paper. Uh, I come from the school gym of Rabbi Iafrady. And so to the rest of the clones, I'm going to say to you, Shalom. And since you dingleberries barely know English, let me translate the Hebrew for you. It means hello, which is me introducing myself to the smack off for the first time. It also means goodbye, which is what every one of you can say to your chances after my call. Jimmy, thank you for the time. Thank you for the invite. I can't wait. I'm out. You know, for a guy who had not had his hand raised in nearly four years, Chael Sonnen looked pretty damn comfortable in that win over Vanderlei Silva Saturday night. And for a guy who has never had any problem talking the talk, he certainly did go out and walk the walk on Saturday. He won a unanimous decision in the main event of Bellator NYC. Dominated all three rounds, controlled the fight from the ground, constantly on the attack, and never allowing Silva to get any traction or any momentum. And maybe more impressive than anything that he did tactically, he took Vanderlei's best shot. A right hook in the first round that dropped him to the mat. That could have been it right there. A shot like that finishes a lot of other guys. But Chael survived it. He won the round. He had a few more big shots. And he did so on his way to a one-sided victory. And because he is Chael, his night was only just getting started when that fight ended. Because he is a gangster. And because he's got more game than pretty much anybody else when he's got a microphone in his hands. So Chael went Chael and he tried to burn Madison Square Garden right to the ground. A dominant performance for the bad guy. How does it feel? You know, I look around this arena and aside from soon-to-be world champion Nisikowski, 
All I can think to myself is, God damn, I hate New York. Right there in the middle of New York, he goes with a GD blast and says, I hate New York. But Damien, he said the exact same thing when he came on the show prior to the fight. So what did you expect him to say after winning the fight? One main event down. One main event to go. Smack off, 23. But before he turns the page to July 28th, the guy who got in the ring on Saturday night looked nothing like the guy who got caught in that rear naked choke by Tito. Chael is back. And this could very well be the summer of Chael. After he took out Silva, he took his flamethrower to New York City, and then he went right back after Tito, who spent the night heckling from ringside, and then Chael hit him post-fight with this smack. Look, Tito's a drunk and he's a drug addict, and, and Tito's broke, and he borrows those suits. I have no idea why they even invite him out here. I mean, that is as low class as it gets. You have to understand this. And I'm not a guy that's a prude about this stuff. I'm not prude about somebody attacking another guy or building up a fight at all. And you'll back me up on this. Of all the things I've ever said or done to somebody else, I will sign that contract and step into that cage and answer for it every single time without exception. Tito Ortiz will never get in there. Tito Ortiz sucks. He was high tonight. He was drinking tonight. He got booed tonight in his bar. I, I couldn't give a damn less about Tito Ortiz. But I do think it's very low brow. You know, he does it. He's going to behave like that. I'm on one side of the fence and he's on the other. It's like, Tito, man, you're, you're, you're messing with the wrong guy. I will come through here and whip your ass. Remember, Chael got choked out by this guy. <laughs> Chael's so awesome. Never has a guy looked so good after getting choked out. <laughs> Listen to what he's saying. He's a drunk. He's a drug addict. He's broke. That's a rented suit. He doesn't even own that suit. It's low rent. It's low brow. I mean, Chael, he was just getting started. This is the summer of Chael all over again. Back and fighting, back and winning, and talking more smack than he ever has. And he's doing it just in time for the smack off. Hey, I wonder if those live odds on Stucknut have changed after hearing that. Hey, Steve, in the event that you didn't hear that, I'm going to run that back for you one more time. If Jeff Passan can do an interview on this show and answer one question and see his smack off odds go down the way they did. What about Chael? He wins a fight and he said on this show that he was ready. He's been thinking about it. That The smack off is a 365, 24-7 deal. He's constantly working. He works all year long for a two-minute call. Well, if he can bring this type of smack that he unloaded on Tito... Right after that fight. Can you imagine if this guy's conducting himself like this on June 26th and he's got more than a month to go. If he's doing this in public, what's he going to be like by the time that show rolls around on the 28th? Look, Tito's a drunk and he's a drug addict. And, and Tito's broke and he borrows those suits. I have no idea why they even invite him out here. I mean, that is as low class as kids. You have to understand that. And I'm not a guy that's a prude about this stuff. I'm not prude about somebody attacking another guy or building up a fight at all. And you'll back me up on this. Of all the things I've ever said or done to somebody else, I will sign that contract and step into that cage and answer for it every single time without exception. Tito Ortiz will never get in there. Tito Ortiz sucks. He was high tonight. He was drinking tonight. He got booed tonight in his bar. So I, I couldn't give a damn less about Tito Ortiz, but I do think it's very low brow. You know, he does it. He's going to behave like that. I'm on one side of the fence and he's on the other. It's like, Tito, man, you're, you're, you're messing with the wrong guy. I will come through here and whip your ass. So if he's got that for Tito, you can imagine what he's got for clones who can't defend themselves. Now they can. A lot of them can. 
And it's a different octagon. It's a different ring. It's a different fight. But that's the thing about MMA. You need to be good at a number of disciplines. And Chael is. This email comes through right after. In fact, this email came through before he was even done. Jim, the only thing more predictable than Chael taking Silva down at will throughout that fight was his witty smack after. If that fella shows up with half of that game on July 28th, he is going home five grand richer. War Chael. War Rick and Buffalo not calling because he's accidentally dialing your number on his remote and pointing his telephone at the television to watch his daytime soaps. Otis in Appalachia. There's more. There's more from Chael. Chael ringside went with this after the fight. I made Tina Ortiz tap out in less than a minute. I got Vandalay Silva out of here in the main event. And when it comes to you, Fedor Emelianenko, I only need one shot. Now you asked me for an autograph in the back. I patted you on your doughy head and told you I think about it. But I've made my decision. I'll give you that signature. But it's going to be on the bottom of a contract, and you're going to find out just like Vandalay and Tito, you never piss off a gangster. You just heard it. Chael Sonnen, ladies and gentlemen. Chael. I mean, Chael's in rare form. But then again, Chael could run better smack than anybody else, even when he was losing. You can imagine what he's got when he wins, and he was feeling it. And it's smack off season. So he's peaking at just the right time, both in and out of the cage. It's a dangerous man. Quote, it's a gangster. Ian Desmond is my guest. Ian, so good to have you back. How are you? I'm doing great, man. How are you? Thanks good. For me. Good. Good to talk to you, Ian, once again. Coming off that game yesterday where you had that five-run lead, it got away. Thanks to a number of wild pitches. Yeah, I mean, Ian, that type of thing, it's a long year. That's going to happen. Does a loss like that then sting a little bit more than most, or can you quickly shake it off and get right back to work tonight? Uh, I mean, I think it, it, it stung, but I, I think we have to we have to shake it off. Um, you know, it's not one of those ones where you you know you go after the game, you, you know, you're laughing and you wash it off. You know, that was one of those ones where you know a little bit a little bit of silence for a while and kind of you know try to absorb what just happened. Um, but at the same time, you know, a lot of things, a lot of good things did happen in that series. Um, and we had some relief pitchers that, that we needed to bounce back pitch really well. Um, you know, DJ stayed hot. I mean, a lot of good things are, I mean, we're still the same team. Um, you know, we just, we just kind of had a little wake up call there. Rockies left fielder Ian Desmond joining us. Now, you had a big year last season with the Rangers, and you had a lot of interest as a free agent in the offseason. You decided to sign with the Rockies. So what was it about Colorado that felt right to you? Um, I think if you just look up and down the lineup, the team is just full of, of really good players, a lot of really good athletes. Um, as I started to kind of, you know, look throughout the minor league system uh, with my agent, um, you know, there's a lot of really good players coming too. Um, there's sustainability here. Um, and, you know, I think we all know that, you know, if you want to make a playoff push, you you know, for the most part, you're going to need to make, you know, that, that trade at the deadline. And we all know that, prospects are the are the number one currency in, in our game at least um and you know we've got the pieces to do that if need be so you know i, I feel like you know if we're in the right position you know we're in, we're we're set up to make a a trade to, to get some help you know it's interesting because you look at the farm system and you look at the assets they have and you can see whereby if they've got to pull the trigger they can but at the same time they were coming off their sixth straight sub 500 season so, I mean, I know you saw something from the outside that encouraged you, but what made you think that there was the potential there to turn this thing around in a hurry? Well, I mean, last year, 
I was when I was playing with Texas. You know, I, I felt like that was a really good team. Uh, we had we had all of it. Um, you know, we were we were great in in one run games, and we came in or we played a four game series against the Rockies last year, and and they had us up until the ninth inning all year long, or in all four of those games. Um, and then we uh, Texas actually came back and beat them in the ninth. Um, I think three out of the four times. One time, Cargo came in. We had him beat, and Cargo came in and hit a double to the left center gap and took the lead. But, you know, they, they had be, had us beat, and I felt like that was a really good team. We played them really well, and they, they matched just, you know, step for step except that last little bit. Um, you know, I just felt like, man, with the right addition, you know, with Bud Black as the manager and Mike Redmond coming in, I felt like that was a really good combination to, you know, kind of shake up, you know, the, the, the guys here. Um, you know, I knew that there were some pieces, you know, that were, were only going to get better. You know, Nolan's 25, 26 years old. I mean, he, he, he's still got a lot left in there. Um, you know, same with DJ and Trevor Story. I mean, you look around, you know, we got the best, we got, we have the best leadoff hitter in the game in Charlie Blackman. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, it, it's, it was kind of a no brainer. You know, I think the thing that sealed it was Bud Black and Mike Redmond coming in. I felt like, you know, they were going to help the pitching and, and they have so far. Ian Desmond, my guest, you know, Ian, the way you answer that question kind of leads me into the next one. I mean, guys who have played with you rave about your work ethic and what you're like as a teammate. Bryce Harper said, quote, I respect Desi more than anyone in baseball. Jeff Bannister, who managed you in Texas, called you, quote, a complete stud and a true leader, end quote. So when you come to a new clubhouse in Colorado, how did you go about approaching that? I mean, do you show up and just do your work and let the rest come to you? What is your approach? I mean, I don't know. I just do my job. You know, I don't, I don't come in, you know, like with this big, like, you know, C on my chest by any means, you know, like I just, I think it was kind of a blessing this year, to be honest, um, you know, to, to have the broken hand, um, you know, it kind of allowed me to like sit back and watch, you know, the way the team operates and see, you know, how, how each individual guy handles his business, you know, whether, you know, if a guy goes 0 for 4, you know, if he wants to talk after the game or if, you know, guys, you know, 4 for 4, what his mood's going to be like or, you know, where where I kind of just see where I fit in. And it gave me a little bit of time to, to adapt and, you know, kind of forget about, you know, last year and, and start, you know, moving myself into the Rockies uh, organization. And, and that was that was probably how it started. Um, but now it's just about playing. I mean, I I never, you know, go out of my way to, like, do anything different than anybody else i just try to play the game i try to respect my teammates and and try to be there if they need me and and try to root them on the best i can i don't know that i'm doing i don't know that i have any secret sauce ian desmond joining us you know it's really interesting what you said about the broken hand i thought i was going to say that back in spring training when you broke it when you were hit by a pitch in a cactus league game that probably was a really unfortunate thing but you just said it's actually kind of a positive. But go back to your point about moving into the organization. When you and I spoke last year, we talked about the fact that before you signed with the Rangers, it was important for you to have a conversation with GM John Daniels and how you believe that a man's word goes a long way and you wanted the team to know how committed you were. Did you want to have a similar kind of conversation with the Rockies too? Yeah, I mean, we I actually had you know a couple long conversations with uh, you know Jeff and and Bud Black, um, just kind of seeing like what their direction was and. You know, kind of hearing their commitment level, um, and then obviously I spent a lot of time in spring training. Um, you know, getting to know the guys and getting to know, you know, kind of the way things operate here. 
you know, the, the, this organization is, is really forward-thinking the way they take care of their players' bodies. <clears throat> we have a really good, you know, strength and conditioning staff. We have a really good, uh, you know, our trainers are great. Um, you know, it's all about the the long haul here, and that's that's a great sign. I think, you know, Jeff uh, Breidich, you know, he wants to – he, he wants to be the one that that turns the page on on the you know kind of like the Rockies as you know that second third fourth place team. He wants to be the one that you know gets us that division title, gets us into the World Series, and um, and ultimately wins it. Um, he made that very clear, and and that was pretty much all I needed to hear. Ian Desmond joining us now. Last time we spoke, you were rocking an iPhone 5C, Ian. Five C. You talked about the fact that you were actually looking to downgrade, but FaceTime was so critical. What kind of phone are you carrying these days? Is it still the five C, or have you moved on to something else? Man, you won't believe it. I like two weeks ago, I had to upgrade because my phone ran out. Of, that five C ran out of storage. And I got all these pictures of my kids. I got all kinds of stuff, and like every time I went to go do something, it was like taking like five minutes. So I, I actually had to go to the seven. I got the the small seven. Uh, but man, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give a plug to this, the people that make this, uh, pocket socket thing, the little circle thing that goes on the back of your phone that like pops out. That cha- that's a game changer, man. That makes the seven much more usable. Uh, you know, the, fi- the whole appeal with the five C was the size, you know, it fits in your pocket. It's good to sit in the palm. Uh, it's durable, but now this is just pocket socket thing is money, man. If you it don't is, have one, you got to get one on your phone. That's an incredible thing. So the 5C, the, the appeal was that it was small and you loved it, but yeah, you probably did run out of storage rocking like four gigabytes or one gigabyte or <laughs> whatever's less than a gigabyte. Okay, now what's what's the ring? What are you talking about? I don't know what that product is. What is it? Yeah, man, it's this pocket socket thing. It's a little circle thing that goes on the back of the phone. It just sticks on there and it like allows you to like hold the phone in a different way. Like So you're not, you're not basically, I don't know, there's a bunch of... There's a bunch of 12-year-olds out there going, I see it. yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I know, do but I get it? Little, I'm looking at it right little, now. like $5, $5 thing that you get and stick on the back of your phone, man. It's a game changer. You got, bro, I'm there, there's you, no, there's you no way, bro, I'm looking at it right now. There's no the way anybody in your clubhouse has one but you. There's no way. No, no there's a couple guys. There's a couple guys that have it. Yeah, Pat Valeka being one. He's the one that kind of turned me on to it. He was like, you got to get it. So whenever an athlete does gain a pound or two or 40, you do come in full force. You do try to hijack my show with your bad jokes and your glosses and your request for the fat alarm. But when a celebrity or an athlete gets skinny or does shed weight, then you're nowhere to be found. M-I-A, you go into hiding. But listen, if you're going to crack fools for getting fat, you have to give them their credit when they slim down or lean out. In other words, Alvin, where's my fat alarm? I love it. Fat. But I love it. A fiddle arm. I love it. Not fat. But I love it. Not fat. I like that. The fiddle arm. I love it. Not fat. But I love it. Not fat. Most of the time, when big boned athletes get skinny, I gotta admit, I'm skeptical. I mean, picks, or it didn't happen. But that's the thing. There are picks for Demarcus Cousins. Have you checked out Boogie's Graham lately? Every shot looks better than the one before it. And bad news for you clones, with every shot, and this guy looks awesome, he looks great, with every shot, it slowly chokes out one of the greatest heckle videos ever. Do your job, man, come on. Hey, Alvin, why is Boogie so fat? Tee him up. up, bro. Hey, D, what's good, baby? Hey, D, what's just staring at y'all? What happened, fat boy? Fouled out? Cousins, what's good? 
so many things about that video that are so incredible. And like every time you listen to it, you pick up something different. What you don't pick up from the audio is him looking over at them incredulously. Boogie's looking over at that crew like, are you freaking kidding me? You're all dead. The problem with that shtick, and it's one of the all-time great heckle videos, the problem is it's no longer appropriate. It's no longer relevant. It doesn't work. Boogie is a whole new dude now. He's traded in the burgers for burpees, the milkshakes for protein shakes, the frozen yogurt for hot yoga. From inhaling gumbo to putting on a gun show. Go to his Instagram page right now and check him out. My man looks gaunt, chiseled. He looks incredible. My man went from being a big man for the Pelicans to being a slim man on the Pelicans. <laughs> hey oh. Hey what I'm saying is, time for those Laker bros to find some new shade to throw this cat's way. Maybe something like, I've got some salad for you, fit boy. Crispy kale, fit boy. Crispy cream, fat boy. Crispy kale, fit boy. Crispy cream, fat boy. And you got to give it to this guy. I mean, I don't know how much time he spent there this summer, but the fact that he's been able to lose all that weight in New Orleans might be the most impressive thing ever. Might be more impressive than even leading them to a championship in New Orleans. I mean, that's not even a knock on the Pelicans. That's praise for the cooking in that town. Gumbo, jambalaya, red beans and rice, bread pudding. All of it. Commander's Palace. Some of the best restaurants in the world. Now, the only concern, of course, is, you know, he looks great right now. Everybody gets fit for the summer. The trouble comes when you try and keep it off. You have to keep it off. Next week is the first true test of the summer, July 5th, the beginning of the end for most of us. You inhale Joey Chestnut amounts of hot dogs at your cookout, burger, brats, booze. You want to opt for the salad? Sure. The only thing they've got is potato salad, though. Then there's the desserts, apple pie, red, white, and blue Rice Krispie treats, melted ice cream, pick your poison. America's birthday may as well be America's girth day. You figure summer's halfway over. Yeah, we'll sore my workouts. Then that gut starts to grow. Last summer, Boogie dropped 20 pounds by doing hot yoga. By March, he was getting taken to task by some wannabe Krispy Kreme employees. Now, I want to say I'll believe it when I see it come season tip-off in October. But then again, I'm not sure it even matters. I just want to give the man credit. He's done the work. He's doing work. He's leaned out. He looks amazing. But I'm not really sure it matters. I'm not sure their success is directly proportionate to his weight. If he's fit, it's definitely an added bonus. Now they're talking about him playing point summer, giving him, or center, giving him ball handling duties. But then again, my man's going to ball no matter what. Remember, he did average 24 and 12 in 17 games for New Orleans last year. 24 and 7, or 24 and 12 in 17 games before he dropped the weight. But then again, if he does keep it off, Look out. You know. You know he's going to get up and down. His energy will be better. He'll recover more quickly. And if you've got Boogie and AD as slim and slimmer, or the Slim Towers, or whatever you want to gloss them, you're looking at the best front court in the NBA. 
And as much as you would hate me for retiring one of the greatest drops of all time, short of chunking up again, Boogie leaves me no choice. He did the work. Give him credit. Boogie did the work. Give him his credit. Mad props to Boogie and RIP to these bros. AD, what's good, baby? AD was just staring at y'all. What happened, fat boy? Foul out? Cousins, what's good? Foul out, chill. Fat boy, how many you got, baby? What's good, fat boy? Fat boy! Fat boy! Fat boy. Get understand, these guys are not like in the upper deck, all right? They're right near the floor. And he's looking right at them and he's hearing everything. And you heard it all. Fat boy, fat boy, Krispy Kremes, baby Huey. What's up, man? You foul out, fat boy, fat boy, fat boy. Look at him now. Go to his Instagram page. Look at him now. My man's not fat. My man looks awesome. Not fat. I love it. The not fit fat. alarm. Alvin, not can I get this guy the fit alarm? Not fat. Boogie, you look great. Not fat. I love it. Not fat. I love it. Not that this not dude lacked motivation anyway, but he looks awesome. And we're all fascinated by AI. Guys who play the game are fascinated by AI. We all want more about him, more information about him, but it's almost impossible to get access. But Lee Jenkins did just that. Lee, it's great to have you back. How are you? Good morning. Great. How are you doing, Jim? Lee, I'm awesome. Thanks so much for doing it. Another great piece by you. Well done. You opened up the piece, Lee, by talking with Ice Cube about the thinking behind the start of the Big Three League. So let me start right there. How did that league come about, and what is he looking to accomplish with that league? You know what, Jim? I think the genesis of it, in many ways, was that Kobe 60-point game, that last game he played at Staples, and just this feeling like these NBA players, so many of them are, are so skilled, they're smart. They can still, a lot of them, shoot, but they obviously don't have, you know, the strength, the speed, endurance to play 82 games, to run up and down the court with guys like John Wall, and then maybe there should be a home for those kinds of people, those kinds of players to still do what they do, to still ply their trade. And then I think what, you know, the reason it sort of has, I think, some potential, more than that, more than the nostalgia factor, is just this idea that three-on-three half-court is kind of becoming a thing, especially overseas. And I know that it's not something that the NBA, active NBA players will do, but you look at some of these guys who are in their early to mid-30s, could that be a way that they could kind of reinvent themselves and stay relevant? We'll see. That's what Ice Cube's kind of banking on. Lee Jenkins joining us. So interesting also to see who the kind of guys that Ice Cube targeted, and Allen Iverson, of course, is one of those guys. There's an amazing quote from LeBron in the piece where LeBron says, quote, Michael Jordan inspired me, and I looked up to him, but he was out of this world. AI was really the god, end quote. What does he mean by that? Yeah, I think Iverson always just, he kept his shoe in kind of that inner city community and sort of hip-hop culture, young African-American culture. So I think you have so many young players who, to Jordan seemed, he seemed out of this world as far as what he'd accomplished, as far as kind of the Madison Avenue appeal and the way that he sort of, you know, shaped a little bit of his image to appeal to the greater population, whereas Iverson was still very much spoke to kind of who they were growing up and, you know, it's kind of, what it was to sort of play in the playground, to play in the neighborhood. And you have so many players now, I mean, Wall especially, but so many of these young 
point guards who grew up and that was kind of the guy that they idolized. I mean, there's a, there's a big Kobe contingent too, but I think when you ask the young point guards who in many ways dominate the NBA right now to find the NBA, you know, who did, who affected you, who really influenced you when you were young, there's a great deal of votes for Iverson. Lee Jenkins joining us, you know, not just those guys, not even just LeBron, but even Ty Lue, who was on the wrong end of Iverson's crossover and then step over, said that he want to have A on his coaching staff. So what do you make of a comment like that from Ty Lue? Yeah, I, I think so what happened there was in that series, and I never, I always think of the step over too, but what Lou, when Lou looks, looks back at his career, he said he was about, his contract was about to expire after that season. He felt like he might not even be in the NBA anymore. And because he was assigned to Iverson, because he did a good job on defense, in that series, that play notwithstanding, that that's the reason the Wizards gave him a deal. And obviously, I, I didn't know that. I didn't really realize that about his career. But he thinks that all of these things that have happened, the career in Washington, the coaching success he's had, obviously the championship in Cleveland, is sort of all due to the mystique Iverson had at that point, the difficulty of guarding him. It's not as though he you know, shut him down or anything in that series, but the relative success he was able to have I mean, he felt it changed his whole career. Now, is coaching something that, you know, Iverson is going to be able to do? You know, one thing, Jim, about the NBA that's interesting, unlike other sports, is that we know where most of these guys are. You know, most of these guys who are huge stars, they're on TV, they're coaches, they're still very relevant. But the way Iverson sort of fashioned his image, and I don't even know if he really fashioned it or if that was just kind of authentic to him, there's not really a, a typical landing spot, right? I mean, you can't really see him in the suit, on the TNT set. So I think he's still sort of searching for that. Could coaching be it, front office job? It's hard to kind of figure out, you know, what the right fit would be for Allen Iverson. And I think the fact that it is hard to figure that out is a lot of why he does sort of have this appeal, because he wasn't going to be anybody's fake. Well, the thing is, Lee, I don't, I don't think coaching is going to work because we know how he feels about practice. But that being said, it's it's a really good point. He's not going to sit in the studio with a suit. And he's not going to be fake, and he's going to be authentic. So then what has his life been like since he stopped playing? I mean, there hasn't been a lot. I mean, his, his life has basically been defined by this divorce trial that I think he kind of went in and out of public consciousness when it was happening. I mean, there's a really – you know, ugly trial with the love of his life, his prom date when he was 16, Tawana Iverson. And, you know, it was a, there was a book, I mean, Kent Babb in the Washington Post wrote a great book it's called Not a Game. And it went through all of these documents from his divorce trial, and it painted a picture of a guy who was really struggling post-basketball, you know, struggling with alcohol, with mounting debt. And, you know, I mean, it really painted a picture of someone who was in a lot of trouble. And so I think a lot of what he's done post-basketball is trying to figure out how we can get his family back. He's now back living with his wife, even ex-wife, even though they're divorced. He's in the house. He's got three kids. I mean, he paints himself as sort of a suburban dad. And listen, Jim, I mean, you spend, you know, an hour or something sitting with you guys. You can't, I can't attest to what his life really is. You know, you just, you listen to what he says. You try to listen to other people who are close to him. Um, but you never know fully with Allen Iverson what's real and what's not. What he paints is sort of a picture of somebody who is, you know, raising the kids and, you know, trying not to piss off his 13-year-old boy too much with advice about free throw form and just kind of living a life of that's fairly simple. That's, I don't know that he has an idea yet about his second act. Maybe this big three is a part of it. Maybe that leads somewhere. Maybe it doesn't.
Lee Jenkins joining us. You know, it's funny, Lee, because you're right. You can't sit with a guy for an hour and really know exactly what's going on in their head or their heart, especially if they're kind of slick enough to to con you or be disingenuous and get away with it. But he did own this. He told you something I thought was interesting. Quote, I used to tell the media, when I'm 40, I won't make the same mistakes. Damn lie. I still get cursed out for the same things I was doing 15 years ago. End quote. So what do you make of that line? Yeah, I mean, he can't, he can't help himself. I mean, he's sort of one of these guys who I think he wants to do all the right things, but he is, he's a real dude. And it's like things, you know, he still goes out with his boys all the time. And like when I interviewed him, he still had like parts of his entourage were still around him. And, you know, he still goes back to, you know, Newport News, Virginia Beach and hangs out. And, you know, I think still probably does come, make some of those same, same mistakes. So I don't know if he's the kind of guy, like when we think about, you know, is there a place for him, right, in the modern NBA? I don't know that he's still going to be a guy who's going to be able to make shoot around every day. You know, I, that sort of – this gets to sort of some of sports and athletes is like these guys are wired a certain way, a lot of them, and they have to somehow change it, right? Like especially once they retire. Like there has to be some sort of change that goes on, some sort of, you know, lacquering for public consumption so they can do the motivational speaking tours and, you know, be in a front office and do all of this. and. You know, that was never really Allen Iverson's way. I mean, he could have, I really believe, he could have reshaped himself as a sixth man, as a guy who just scored off the bench. You look at Vince Carter, Jim, he's still playing. You look at, you know, Paul Pierce, he played forever. Why didn't Iverson do that? Well, I don't think he could have brought himself to not start, you know, to not be the guy and the alpha, and the game was going to change. They didn't want to run ISO every time, and I don't think he wanted to change. I think that was, this is who he is. And it made for an electric career. Will it make for a glorious post-career? <sighs> you don't know. Yeah, it's really fascinating, Lee. I was going to ask you that very question because I remember being on the air and doing this show and saying just that, like, come on, AI, it, this is not unusual. It happens to all great athletes. If they want to stay in the game, they've got to find a way to adjust. I mean, how many power pitchers have learned to get by exactly. on less velocity? But he didn't seem to have it in him. But Lee, what about his approach? I mean, this is a guy who was unapologetic. I mean, we know how he felt about practice, but this was a guy who hit it hard and would say, look, man, I got in at 6 a.m. and all I needed was to nap it out for a little while and I'd be fine. <laughs> I mean, is this part of the reason that not only would he not accept a lesser role or a different role, but maybe his body wouldn't allow it? No, I think there's got to be something to that. And look, it's part of his legend, right? He burned the candle at both ends. And I think when you talk to kind of GMs who looked at him in those later days, they felt like, you know, he didn't take great care of his body. I mean, he obviously didn't. He's not a guy who believes. When I was kind of, I was talking to him a little bit about what the modern NBA is like as far as monitoring what these guys eat and you know, the wearable technology, and you got to get eight hours sleep, and they have all these sleep experts coming in and out, lecturing them. And, I mean, he looked at me like I was speaking another language. You know, that's just, that's not what he's doing. And, you know, he kind of reminds me of, like, I don't know, some of the great, I mean, you've interviewed more fighters than I have. I haven't interviewed a lot, but he sort of reminds me of one of those guys. Like, he was going to do it his way, and it worked for a period, and it worked in a way that I think will be unforgettable. I mean, to me, his legacy looms larger than so many guys with rings who say that a ring, you know, enhances your legacy so much. So, you know, that's part of it. That's part of, like, the image of Allen Iverson. And I never know how much of that is with him just being completely authentic to himself or him realizing, you know, I'm going to zag while everybody else zigs. So, it, that, but, yeah, I don't, think, I don't think there's any doubt that that lifestyle 
made it so that it was going to be hard for him to have one of these 20-year careers. Lee Jenkins joining us. So a final thought, Lee, you know how it is with this league because it is what it is, but the fans want to see AI go out there and cross fools up and then step over them. He knows that. How is he approaching it as a player? Oh, this big three. Yeah, I mean, he kind of... He kind of sold me on a bunch of crossovers, and I talked to his high. He actually had his high school coach come out and train him for this. So they hadn't worked together since the 1993 Virginia State Championship. Wow. I had him come out to Charlotte and train him for this thing, and you know everybody's kind of telling me, "Oh, he hasn't lost this step," and you know, I mean, he has. He's 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 out of shape. I mean, comparatively, and he doesn't believe he's not the kind of guy who's going to train for six months. He's two weeks, and I'll be good. But anybody who saw him yesterday in Brooklyn, I mean, he only played nine minutes. He was one for six. Look, nostalgia is so powerful in sports. I mean, it really does sell. And I've, obviously, Iverson is somebody I think guys, they want to see because he hasn't been on TV all the time, you know, for the last five or six years. So I think there will be some sort of initial pull. But to me, like, the relevance of the big three doesn't necessarily hinge on the nostalgia or even on Allen Iverson. It's going to come down to, like, is there an appetite for this half-court, three-on-three, fast-paced basketball in the summer months? I think there may be, but nostalgia only gets you in the door, right? I mean, they're going to need more than nostalgia to keep this thing relevant for long term. Canadian representative in the smack-off, Tyler in Edmonton is back. Tyler, what's up? How are you? What's up, bro? How are you doing, man? Good. How about you? I'm good, man. Just want to give uh, quick props to our guy, Gary V. Unreal stuff last week, man. That guy's a total boss. A couple guys who I do not consider total bosses. Matt Vancouver, congrats on the ticket, I guess. Not sure if he came in sixth or seventh, but whatever it was, man, sure as hell wasn't first. I like that part where you choked on your bit about left choking on his bit. That was pretty good. You had an entire week to get that liner in, and you still messed the bit. Typical Vancouver choke job. How about passing, flexing his muscles, bringing Hackoff, Hopels like Cal and Mike into the equation? Solid stuff, passing. Now, to my neighbors to the south, America, are you tired of ankle and elbow fat giving you skin rash? Do you want results without having to sacrifice your hourly trip to your local fast food restaurant? Or are you just too useless to actually commit to a workout that will help you see your own toes again? Then I have the plan for you. Drop the pills, quit the anorexic behavior, and pick up the hottest, newest exercise plan that is guaranteed to sell you the exact same crap as every other gym hack plan before it, I give to you the four-pack revolution. Seriously, Chael, you got to be freaking kidding me with this. Who the hell strives to get a four-pack? Is that really what it's come to down there? No wonder you didn't want to promote that book during your last interview. You probably know it's a joke. And for the record, you don't need to be on drugs or be anorexic to have a six-pack. The starter for all you fat Americans trying to lose a couple hundred pounds, quit filling your cookie jars with Big Macs, quit putting Pepsi in your cereal, and most of all, quit being lazy as hell and reading books about cheap, quick gimmick workouts, and just go work out. War lean Canadians. I'm out. Hey, you got to rock that guy. Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate you, and I appreciate that. So now do what you do, and just trust the podcast. Plus, check back tomorrow for more Daily Jungle. We'll be all over it. See you then. We've got all the news right here. I'm going to stop you right there. I see you about to settle on a day-old donut for breakfast. Well, this is a chick intervention. Cosmic Chicken Biscuits and Chicken McGriddles are now at McDonald's. So just hit that drive through and change your life. For breakfast, you got this. 
Wake Up Breakfast. Say good morning to McChicken for breakfast. Right now at your local McDonald's, you can mix and match two chicken McGriddles or McChicken biscuits for just $3. Price and participation may vary at participating McDonald's for a limited time.